Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Gamarjoba, and welcome to the history of Sacarvelo, Georgia. I'm your host, Roberto. And this is episode 14, Last of the Parnavazids. In this episode, we will close out the Parnavazid dynasty. Due to a lack of sources, we're covering quite a long period of time in this episode, from 132 to 284 AD. Quick reminder, the Ask Me Anything is coming up in April, and I'd like you to get some questions in before that. We also have a coffee, so feel free to buy us a coffee to support us. Link is in the episode transcription. In our last episode, we finished up the reign of Parsman II, otherwise known as Parsman the Valiant. As far as we know, he was poisoned by the Parthians since they were unable to defeat him in outright battle, after which we have two versions of how events played out. We could go with the easy succession of Khadam to the throne, or go with the dramatic reconquest of Kartli by the Iberian allies as told by the Chronicles. Let's begin with the Chronicles version, because we're really not going to have more information about Khadam. The Chronicles last left us with the division of Kartli by Mirdat, Parsman's diarchic co-ruler of Shida Kartli, and with Parsman's lands in the hands of the Parthians. They ruled the region with an iron fist, and all were under their control save for the Megrelians, who instead lent their support to Khadam, Parsman's son and successor. Khadam was whisked away to Armenia by Parsman Spaspeto, or king's deputy, Pardavaz, and by his mother, Khadana, to escape Mirdat's wrath on the now-conquered dynasty. Seeing his grandson in trouble, Prince Vologasses I of Armenia reached out to his suzerain, the Romans, for help. The Romans sent a legion of soldiers to join the Armenians in their battle with the combined Parthian and Iberian army. The Megrelians, who supposedly had an endless supply of soldiers, added their numbers to the Armenian alliance. If the Megrelians really had infinite amounts of manpower, I'd really love to have them on my side. That could win wars. As more and more Megrelian soldiers amassed on the frontier, Mirdat and his Parthian co-ruler could only feebly call for more reinforcements. The Armenian-Roman Megrelian coalition marched into Shidakartli and were met by the Parthian-Iberian army right on the Lyachvi River at a place called Riecha. While I would love to go into detail at this amazing battle, the chroniclers do not give us such detail. They merely state that the battle took place and countless people died on both sides, leaving the Persian-Iberian army destroyed. Well, of course, the Megrelians had infinite amount of soldiers, so you could keep going. And, as always, Mirdat managed to escape to... Wait... This says Mirdat died in battle along with the Parthian governor? Well, good news everyone! 
Parzman the Valiant has been avenged, and his son Khadam was placed onto the throne in 132 AD. Khadam's reign was short-lived, as he died three years later, and was succeeded by his one-year-old son, Parzman III, in 135 AD. What little we know about this period indicates that Parzman III's grandmother, Khadana, wife of Parzman the Valiant, reigned as regent for her grandson. There is also the small possibility covered in the last episode that he visited Rome and met with Antoninus Pius in 154 AD. When he became a man, he was crowned as king. Otherwise, his rule was long and uneventful. Parzman III died in 185 AD, having ruled for a nice round 50 years. He was succeeded by his son, Amazasp II. All we know about Amazasp II pretty much only comes from the Chronicles, and otherwise, there really isn't any evidence or sources for information about his rule. At least this story will have a battle. Right off the bat, King Amazasp II is described as a powerful man, resembling Parzman the Valiant. You can really tell that the priest crush is only on Parzman II because Amazasp II is compared to his great-grandfather. Nevertheless, Amazasp II had difficult shoes to fill. It's kind of hard to live up to expectations when the bar was set by a guy called the Valiant. Indeed, things were not going great for Cartley during Amazasp's reign. During this period, the Ascetian Alliance was gone. Relations became increasingly hostile until the Ascetians formed a great army and marched into Cartley. They traveled by the road of Dvaleti and went unnoticed until they crossed the Dario Pass. They camped on the Liakvi River and rested for eight days. Surprisingly, they sent no raiding parties, as was expected of them. Instead, they were conserving their men for the destruction of Mitischieta. Amazas II was forced to withdraw into his fortress and place his troops along the gates. Many unmounted soldiers rallied to protect Mitischieta from this foreign invader and defended the gates and walls of the city, with a total of 30,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 horsemen at Amazas' disposal. Amazas strategized how best to protect the city and decided to place troops on both sides of the Aragvi River, in the fortresses by the gates. He then took his horsemen and placed them in the rear to cover an area of the city called Saspurzle. Amazas was more than prepared for the defense of Metisheta. Soon the Ascetians arrived on the horizon. Amazas came to the walls, armed with his bow. He unleashed arrows upon the enemy. His arm and bow were so powerful that he struck true each time and penetrated through the armor of the Ascetians. And the best part of this attack? His aim was so true that the Ascetians were unable to see from where the arrows came, just showing how far they flew. Amazas sniped down 15 Ascetian champions and many horses. The poor horses. Amazas' personal champions felled a great many of the Ascetian champions and caused great damage to the Ascetian army. After the battle, Amazas returned to Mitischieta that same night with his horsemen, while his foot soldiers remained to protect the gates. Soon enough, the sound of horses could be heard approaching from the east. The eastern Aristavi of Cartley had arrived as reinforcements. The following day, Amazas came out with his troops, leaving the bow behind, instead opting for the more personal spear. An Ascetian champion named Juanhua stepped forward and challenged Amazas to battle. Amazasp accepted, and soon battle cries filled the air. However, the battle did not last long, and Amazasp was clearly the superior fighter. 
Amaza's spear pierced through Huan Hua and killed him. Leaving his spear inside the man, Amaza unsheathed his sword and dashed to fight other Assetian champions. He managed to slay two Assetians before withdrawing back to Mitasheta. With this series of defeats at the hands of the Cardavelli, the Assetians decided to plan a direct assault on Mitasheta. Things would not go the way the Assetians planned, and Amazas had managed to preemptively move out of the city with his infantry and horsemen. He attacked the Assetian camp, defeated and routed their army. During this, the Assetian king was killed and the army destroyed. Amazas then retreated to Mitasheta, victorious. However, Amazas was still furious with the Assetians. He reached out to the Armenians for support, and they granted him troops. Amazasp and the Kartveli army soon marched to Assetia and laid siege to, occupied, and devastated the region. Soon after, Amazasp returned to Kartli, victorious. The series of victories had gone to Amazasp's head, and led him to become conceited, vindictive even. The stories of noblemen murdered at the hands of Amazasp went across Kartli, and the Kartveli soon grew to hate him. Amazas turned away from his Armenian allies, favoring the Parthians instead, and even converted to the Zoroastrian faith. Remember what happened to the last Zoroastrian king? This will not end well. Five Aristavi from the western region soon broke with Amazasp. Two Aristavi from Egrisi, one from Morzike, Klarjeti, and Sunda, made their way to the Armenian king and requested to make his son king of Kartli, since he was Amazasp's nephew, son of Amazasp's sister. The king of Armenia agreed and marched to Kartli with a grand army that included Romans. The Armenians sent envoys to the Ossetians, requesting support in a two-front attack. The Ossetians eagerly agreed in their thirst for Amazasp's blood. The Armenian armies crossed the road of Takveri and came into the lands of the Aristavis of Egrisi. Amazas called his newfound Parthian allies and his own army to attack the rebels, along with many of the eastern Kartveli that were still faithful to the king. The Ossetians and Megrelians crossed the Leaky mountain range and joined the rebels, appearing before the Armenian king. The rebel forces were met by Amazas at Gutishevi, and not one single man from the Roman, Armenian, Ossetians, Megrelian, and Western Kartveli would dare respond to Amazas' challenge of single combat. They knew that they would lose their lives needlessly in doing so. With the challenge to combat falling on deaf ears, the armies met in a great battle. The rebel forces overwhelmed the Kartveli Parthian force, destroyed the army, and managed to kill the mighty Amazas himself. The king of Armenia took over the lands of Kartli and left his son, Amazasp nephew, Rev, as king of Kartli. The year was 189 AD. Amazasp II ruled for a total of four years. But that's not the end of Amazasp II's story. In 1996, an incomplete Greek inscription was found at Baginetti in Mitisheta, which mentions Amazaspos, great king of the Iberians. Thanks to the efforts of Tinatin Kauchishvili, this text has been reconstructed. It states that Amazasp appears to have been married to the daughter of Vologasis, king of Armenia, which would explain his Armenian alliance when fighting the Ossetians. Another Greek inscription, which was unearthed at Bagineti and actually identified by Professor David Brond, an ever-continuous helpful font of knowledge for the show, found the mention of a queen Dracontis, 
which is possibly the Queen Amazasp is married to. These inscriptions also show a high courtier of Amazasp named Anagranis, whose title translates to Rearer or Foster Father. We don't really know what he does, but this is an amazing find, especially in a period where we only have the chronicles to help us. With the death of Amazasp II, the spear line, or Petrolino line, of the Parnavaza dynasty had come to an end. Technically, it ended way back in the rule of Saramag I, Parnavaz's the first son. He had married a Persian noble to his daughter, but had also adopted him to be his heir, preserving the dynastic line. According to ancient tradition, this would still preserve the line, although it was not done so by blood. Now, the distaff or matrilineal side of the Parnavaza dynasty will rule, but to change it up, we're going to call them the Arshakuni dynasty to mark the difference. They're still Parnavaza by blood, but this was a ruler appointed by the king of Armenia, and for us, closes the penultimate chapter of the Parnavazids. Now, to the start of the Arshakuni dynasty. Reb the first, first order of business, with the power bestowed on him by his father, was to secure his new dynasty, like a king should do. He married a Greek woman, the daughter of a logothete, named Cephalia. That's a pretty name. The chronicles make a point of saying that Cephalia brought with her an idol of Aphrodite and erected it at Mitisheta. There is no evidence, however, that there was such an idol or if Aphrodite was even widely worshipped because of it. Rev lived through a rather peaceful period and the chroniclers gush over his kindness towards the Christians. Quote, King Rev though a heathen, was a kind man and rendered help to all the needy. He knew some things from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and even felt some fondness for Christ. End quote. I don't know how much fondness Rev did feel for the big JC himself, but I'm more than sure he just didn't want to bother himself with persecuting Christians. To add to his kindness, the Chronicles make note that Rev was so kind that he didn't let the Georgians sacrifice children since they were sacrificed to the pagan idols. That feels like classic Christian propaganda regarding child sacrifice by pagans, since there is also no evidence of a child sacrifice in the Armazi faith. Not like we have much information about the Armazi faith outside of Christian sources. Instead of letting these child sacrifices continue, he implemented a rule that animals, such as sheep or cows, should be sacrificed. He was therefore dubbed as Rev the Just by the Chroniclers. It's also worthy of mention that historian Cyril Tumanoff notes that the epithet, the Just, was widely used by Parthian rulers. The Arshakid dynasty in Kartli was a branch from the one in Parthia, which would help explain why he adopted that title. And that's where all information about Rev the Just's rule ends. He ruled from 189 to 216 AD. And now we enter what I like to call the blank period. The blank period are the 44 years where we have three different rulers and the only information we have on them is who they inherited the throne from. Rev was succeeded by his son, Vakhe, who ruled from 216 to 234 AD. Vakhe was succeeded by Bakur I, who ruled from 234 to 249 AD. Bakur I was succeeded by Mirdat II, who ruled from 249 to 265 AD. Now, if you can do quick maths, you're probably wondering why I said 44 years, which would leave us at 260 AD when Mirdat ruled until 265 AD. 
Well, the reason being, we have an anti-king. I'm going to give some background information regarding this five-year period because we'd be entirely lost without it. Well, more lost than usual. Back during Vakha's reign, things were bad for the Parthians. So bad, in fact, that their rule ended completely when King Ardashir defeated the Parthian king Artaban V and founded the Sassanid dynasty. With the new Sassanid dynasty in power, the Zoroastrian faith returned with a vengeance. The only evidence we have of the Sassanids is a silver chalice that was found in an Armazi sarcophagus. The silver chalice had an Aramaic inscription reading, Papak, Vitaksa of the divine Ardashir, give this chalice to Arzamas, Vitaksa of the country, Gurzan. A coin found in the sarcophagus dates the burial and the chalice to being after 253 AD. Also, you might notice the use of the name Gurzan. That's a sign we are finally hearing Cartley's name get closer to that of Georgia. It's not until 242 AD that Cartley surfaces back into the limelight of world history after a very nice, quiet period. It's thanks to Shapur I of Persia's aggressive expansions that we see a new departure in Cartley's history. Shapur was looking back to the past glories of the Achaemenid dynasty and was quite eager to bring back Persian dominance over the regions. King Shapur's victory over the Romans and his capture of Emperor Valerian in 260 was attributed to his divine favor, and in turn, he created five new fire cults for his family. Daily rituals were endowed for four separate groups, members of the royal family, the court of Papak, Shapur's grandfather, the court of Ardashir, his father, and for those under Shapur's personal lordship. Instead of transferring his prestige to his successors, he instead urged them to work towards the divine favor of the gods, just like he had. Under Shapur's lordship, and under the fifth fire cult, we find King Amazasp III of Kartli, our current anti-king. He is the last named king on the list, followed by princelings and other officials. This marks Amazasp as important enough to be part of the locus of political power, but not important enough to be higher on the list. The Kingdom of Armenia was way more important for the Sassanids than the throne of Kartli, since the throne of Armenia was second only to the imperial throne. Do not underestimate the Kartveli throne in the Sasanian Empire. Amazas III was at the top of society, considered one of the Shardaran, or part of the Sasanian royal family. He is actually listed as the fourth highest dignitary in the Sasanian realm and is noted for his fondness for the Persians. There are several Sassanid inscriptions that talk about an Amazas III's rule in Kartli from 260 to 265. Shapur claimed Kartli as a vassal state and used his chance to place Amazas III as a Sassanid ally to counteract Mirdat II's Roman alliance. He fought against invading Ossetians, then Romans and Megrelians from Colchis, and then against his own nobles, which led to Shapur I's defeat and Amazas III's death. And that's all we really know about Amazas III. There are hints of a Manichaean Christian connection with Amazas III, as Professor Stephen Rapp and Dr. Tamila Migalobilishvili connect Amazas with the Lord Prince Habza, who is mentioned in some early Manichaean texts. That was a huge tangent, and I find it funny we have more information about an anti-king than we do about the actual Kartveli king. In 265 AD, 
Both Mirzath II and Amazaspa III perished, somehow, and the throne passed over to Aspagor I, Mirdat's son. Aspagor I ruled from 265 AD to 284 AD. Like a good Kartveli king, he built a brand new fortress city named Ujarma. It's unknown who Aspagor married, but with his wife he had a daughter named Abishura. Kartli remained in relative peace until the end of Aspergor I's reign when Sasanian forces came a-knockin'. Calling his allies, the Armenians, Ossetians, Lekis, and Scythians, Aspergor went into Sasanian lands, and he soon encountered the Sasanian king, Bahram II. The Sasanian and Caucasian forces joined in battle. The battle proved to be too much for the Caucasians, and their army was destroyed. Aspergor sustained heavy wounds and fled to Assyria, where he died a few months later in 284 AD. Bahram II used this chance to wed Aspergor's daughter Abishura to a noble from the royal house of Miran, a cadet branch of the Arshakid dynasty named, well, Miran. Miran was crowned as an infant, and with that, the Parnavazid line is gone. Enter the Chosroid dynasty. To support us, Feel free to look us up on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram as The History of Sacatevelo, Georgia, on Twitter at History underscore Georgia, on our website at historyofsacatevelo.com, or on our email at thehistoryofsacatevelo.georgia at gmail.com. Sacatevelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. For more direct support, you could buy us a coffee. Again! I love coffee, please. The link is in the episode transcription on our website. Our Amazon wish list is also available if you'd like to purchase a book for us. Please, I, I need the sources. Also, a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast host goes a long way with getting the word out about the show and helping us reach new people to learn about Georgia. Matlaba danachvamdis, and thank you for listening to The History of Sacadvelo, Georgia. See you next time.